Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter's music. And I'd like to also thank Davine Dial for all the good work she does at WPVMFM. We could not put these shows together without you, Davine. We thank you very much. That's Davine Dial. If any of you would like to know more about what Davine does, WPVMFM.org is a great place to start your research about what community radio means to all of us. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I would, would love to hear from you. My website, of course, is jamesnave.com if you'd like to find out more about what I'm up to. And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning, 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I host an Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. Writers gather from all over the world. We have a fellow calling in from South Africa, a fellow calls in from Rwanda, other places as well. And we, we get together and we just write imaginatively for an hour and people read and, and then we go on our merry way. The door is always open. We would love to have you. Imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com if you would like to know more about, about what we do on Saturday. I have been doing this show for a long time, and today I'm in a, I would call it a very special environment because I'm doing a live interview, and I've traveled for this live interview, and I have my good friend, long time fellow I've known for a long, long time, Keith Flynn. He's a poet, he's a singer-songwriter, he's a musician, he's a producer, Keith is does just many, many things, and he is a storyteller, and you're going to get a sense of, of what I mean by that. And I'm also happy to be sitting here with Davine Dial as well. We're in Keith's studio. It's really not a studio, it's a church. I'll let him tell you about that as well. So Davine and I drove up. So this is a real live journalistic adventure to see, to see Keith Flynn. And I am so glad that you're with us today, Keith. Welcome. Well, welcome to you and Devine, Jim. It's a pleasure to see you. Uh, we don't get the chance to spend enough time together. No, and I love that you call me Jim because my friends who've known me for a long, long time call me Jim, and I always know when somebody calls me Jim, oh my goodness, we go back. And I don't know how far we go back, probably the early 90s when we were all in Asheville doing the Green Door and the, the poetry scene back then. You're here in this gorgeous spot you have. So let's start at home where you are now and go out from there because I know you love poetry, you love music, you love the songs of the earth, the universe. How does home factor into the work you do and why do you think that has value? Well, I grew up in this county. My family's been here five or six generations. Um, I started the Crystal Zoo, which was my band that I formed in the mid-80s uh, in Nashville. I was going to go to law school, but I didn't go to law school. I ended up in a rock band in Nashville, Tennessee. You either had three places you could go if you were going to start a band. You could go to New York, you could go to L.A., or you could go to Nashville. Nashville, the cost of living was much easier on the pocketbook and on your uh, 
psyche. Also, there were more studios per capita in Nashville, and that's still the case, than any other city in the world. You could throw a rock in any direction, you'd hit an engineer in the head. Somebody who had a couple of Akai 12 tracks bunched together, 24 channels were in every bedroom in Nashville. When I first moved there, good friends with Warren Haynes, he produced our first demos. He actually saw my first demos, he played drums on. So it became pretty apparent after we started making demos. My demeanor wasn't suited exactly for a life of being a barrister, as the English would say. I was more suited to front a rock band, I think. And of course, you and I know when we first start out, you know all of our heroes. The poets' biographies are filled with horrifying, tragic endings and poverty-laden existences. So you decide, okay, how am I gonna make a living while I do what I am chosen to do? or I have chosen to do, one or the other. I think poets are somewhat chosen. For me, it was a little bit like a religious experience. It felt like a conversion. When I was a kid, I grew up in the church singing uh, from the time I was five years old. I was saved in the Southern Baptist tradition and, and baptized when I was like eight or nine years old. And I used to be a little bit of a kid preacher. I would give testimony. My sister would play piano. I would preach a little bit, uh, the local revival or funeral or wedding, or we did that for a number of years, and I became a pretty natural performer from those things. I was also a basketball player and one of the all-time leading scorers at that high school, so performing was part of the action. You grew accustomed to having all the eyes on you, and uh, so you know I, I never really had stage fright. I wasn't tentative about that, and so. Uh, being a frontman for a rock band was a real challenge though. You, being able to sing and write songs came pretty naturally to me, but fronting a band, it took a minute. It was more of a challenge than I anticipated. I wanted to master that. That was something that was real dear to me to try to get really good at. You remove the wall between yourself and the audience. You engage the audience in such a manner that they think they are part of the experience. And they are. If you've got a room full of Hell's Angels, that's a little more difficult to gauge um, where the dynamism is flowing on that particular wavelength. Learning how to gauge a crowd, to sense that what they want, how they're feeling, and to keep them as high and enthusiastic and physically engaged as you can. And that requires a good bit of physical exertion on your part, too. It's not a mind Jedi man trick, you know what I mean? You have to, you have to go get them. You said you grew up in the church, and now you're back here in the area that your family's been in for years, generations. And you brought this church up the driveway. You started out in the church, you led the rock band, you've been out on the road all these years writing and singing, and now you're back here. How did you get from fronting the rock band to bringing the church up the driveway and living in the church, overlooking some of the most gorgeous Western North Carolina territory you can overlook. Well, I lived for six or seven years in Nashville. Then once we had the band signed, we were in New York for many years. Then I started the Asheville Poetry Review in 94. And I really wanted the review, I thought it was a one-off, Jim. I, I thought at the time I would do something that would illustrate and be a, a demarcation point for the literary renaissance that was taking place in the early 90s. All the artists were coming here. Uh, it wasn't just poets and musicians, though they were, they were prominent in that exodus. 
It was also painters and sculptors and dancers. I mean, Asheville, if you live, you know, south of the Manson-Nixon line, this is the place to be. This is the most enlightened, most progressive city that there is. Charleston is a close second for me. You know, Asheville was the place to be. So when I came back and started the journal, I began to feel that pull. You know, the mountains have a spirit. There is a sense of the wilderness here that still exists in Madison County that you can't find just anywhere. You can be somewhere where not many people have ever been with, with if you hike 30 minutes in any direction from here. So having a way to name the wilderness and to allow your poetry to inhabit and take on that wilderness, to constantly be able to maintain that sort of primal urge and those primal impulses. Because poetry is a, a long piece of hungry momentum flying headlong down a page through that white space, and it has to take on no impediments. Those impediments are built with rhythm. Rhythm overcomes like a giant river that washes out the logs and the detritus and the rocks. Poetry is that river, and it's taken away those rocks. Those impediments, which are either psychological or technical, are easily washed away by the natural rhythm of poetry, by the redemptive force of the poet's imagination. One of the things that's most interesting about that is that rhythm is the most powerful spirit, whatever you want to call it, in the world. Rhythm is it. Our bodies are built from, we're rhythmic beings. We are literally made of 70% of water. We are flowing through the world. It's no coincidence that the world itself is covered in 70% water. We are natural extensions of that rhythm. And so is poetry, and so is music. Music has the ability to persuade without argument, right? Poetry needs an argument, you know. Poetry has a position that it wants you to take, but it wants to tell the truth, but tell it slant, as the line goes. And so as a consequence, we're able to find a place in our bodies because there are poems that are taking place all over the place. There are poems that are slithering through this forest behind us that are coming down the road, down the alleyways, between the ash cans, and those poems are headed toward the readers that they were intended for all along. And there are poems for every reader. You're almost touching on the mystical here. We're back to the church and the singing and the praise and the joy. I've known you more as a poet than as a singer, although I've seen many of your concerts, so I've known you as that as well. I've interviewed a lot of, a lot of singer-songwriters. Most of them write poetry on the side. I tell people when I mention your name, I say, well, you know Keith Flynn, that guy knows more about poetry than almost anybody I've ever met. Why is that such a draw for you, aside from the river flowing, which may be the only reason to do it? Well, there's a long river of literature that goes back hundreds and thousands of years, and we all have to find our place in that. You find your voice by figuring out what's come before, and we are what we read. We're comprised of the books that we've ingested, um, and so those things take on a, a huge importance the more you engage yourself in that long lineage. You know what I'm saying? It, rhythm was natural for me because I was a singer. When I was five years old, I was singing in the choir. I already had a voice. I was louder than everybody in the choir. And they would go, little Flynn, you're blowing everybody away. Can you go over on that other side and sing? And then you still hear me above everybody else. Then they go, little Flynn, would you get behind those guys on that back row? And, and then it was finally, it was like, well, I'll tell you what, little Flynn, 
why don't you just be quiet for a minute and we'll give you your own verse to sing and the rest of the time you just be quiet and then when your time comes you know when it is and you give it your all sing your little heart out okay but they didn't know they were building this performance monster from that well, within a few weeks i had sang my own song and then the congregation they we became a thing every sunday was when's little flynn gonna sing his song <laughs> right so i was came a natural performer from that you know from the time i was really small and then uh, when I went to college on a basketball scholarship, pretty soon I, I had a class with a professor named Margaret Verholst. Every poet has a teacher that convinced them they could do it. Every one of us has that story where a teacher said to you, that's special, what you did is special. She introduced me to William Blake, the marriage of heaven and hell. And it broke the fountain open and the water started pouring out. Brilliant aphorism, the cut worm forgives the plow. Providence is an ugly old maid courted by incapacity. The eagle was never so low as when he stooped to listen to the crow. Energy is eternal delight, exuberance is beauty. And those aphorisms made their way into my body and my brain and I couldn't think of anything else. All I wanted to do was write poetry. I wanted to find a way to that place. And Blake has done that for many people. One of the first episodes I did when I did the radio show live at White Rock Hall, I talk about Blake and how much of an influence he has had to this day from the early 19th century on musicians and scholars and poets and novelists. He understood also that there is something that happens in the church, that that conversion spirit, that religion is a way of connecting your spiritual self to the world. People do it in church because it's made ready for them and generations of people. It's easy to open the book of the Bible and go to the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon or what have you. And David, they speak to you. Whitman's, those long lines are Old Testament lines. Ginsburg, take the same line. Those are Old Testament lines. It was pretty quick from that vantage point for me to start finding other poets who moved me in that manner, like Pablo Neruda or Wallace Stevens or William Carlos Williams. That began to change the nature of who I was. And then I had to figure out a way to live <laughs> while I wrote my poems, and I chose to be in a rock band. And so while you were doing the rock band, you were also working your poems, and then your poems worked their way into the rock band songs, and your rock band experience came back and formed the, the poetry. Do you, by chance, happen to have one on the top of your head you could offer us since we've been talking about this? Uh, a poem or a song or a, a poem. Just, Do you have a poem? One of mine or one of somebody else's? Well, whatever you feel like. I'd love to hear one of yours, but maybe pair them. Um, I like the pairing. Somebody else's? Keith um, Flynn's. Well, I, one of the first poets that really moved me was a poet named Theodore Retke. And Retke had a book called The Far Field. And when I was in Mars Hill, the, I went to the library for the first time and I f found that book and it just moved me so much. I threw it out the window into a bush and then I went downstairs and picked it up and I carried that with me for like 15 years. Because they didn't have my name, I'm sure there are, no, there are no dues on that book. I still have it, actually. One of the things that happened to Rethke was uh, he had a little trouble with mental illness, which is also a uh, design flaw in, in, too, in too many poets. Late in his life, he met a young woman who he loved very much, who loved his poetry, who took care of him as he began to age and deteriorate. 
and he wrote this very small poem because words are like atoms. The more pressure you put them under, the more radioactive they become. That's why condensation is the final frontier for a poet. The ability to glean lines that are composed in a flood, edited in a trickle. So as you build a poem, build it as big as you want to be. It's hard to be wise and in love at the same time, right? So making poetry is an act of love. There's no other way to think of it. As we compose, like I said, you do it in a flood, then you edit in a trickle, then, then you have to have really a killer instinct. The best poets understand how to edit their work. And it's really the difference between poets that are somewhat mediocre and poets that become great. They understand where the lines are. They know how to make it small and so that it resonates in a radioactive manner. So this is a very small poem. It's called Wish for a Young Wife. Theodore Redke, my lovely lizard, my lively writher, may your limbs never wither, may the eyes in your face survive the green ice of envy's mean gaze, may you live out your life without hate, without grief, and your hair ever blaze in the sun, in the sun, when I am undone, when I am no one. I always thought that that poem inhabited some of the silence that is the white page. That's silence. That's how do you utilize the silence. Louis Armstrong said that he wanted his audience to get so quiet that they could hear a rat in the wall pissing on cotton, right? And so as a maker, you begin to understand how to plow into that silence and utilize it in the poem. That's a poem that needs silence to be able to tell its whole tale to me. And what about a poem that you wrote? I was trying to think of an early poem that I wrote. Um, I've written so many poems at this juncture, you know, I don't, I don't know them all by heart necessarily, but uh, this is a poem called Dream Trail. I think it was one of the first two or three poems that I ever published. On the map of your body, I marked a road, a tender path through marshes and magnolias that droop with sleep and brush across your windshield as you pass, waving. As I am told, the Japanese wave until a guest is a dot in the sun, waving at the memory a handshake made, the wind through the fingers, sharing. If I could turn a stone in you without the dark acids bubbling up around my feet and lay my cheek against the wet grass, jaundiced now, but waiting, waiting for the spark of a star to turn in your thighs, the green eyes to glow again in the fields of your eyes. We come together like blind roots out of fear. And in that pocket, your teeth tick like castanets. The moon moves behind a cloud and rests there 
in our bodies like a humming stone. And in the night of your answer, the gonging of our blood will be told. Remember, on the map of your body, I marked a road. There was as much silence in that as in the recipe poem. And I love the way you quietly took us in. You and I have been around a lot of loud poets in our time. <laughs> and I like the, the quiet, easy approach as much as I do the loud. Well, it depends on the poem. Well, and, that's true. Um, uh, each poem has its own uh, delivery system. And it's built into the poem itself. There are poems that I deliver rat-a-tat and at high volume because that poem has to be delivered that way. And they're built that way. Those particular poems, and it's easier for, you know, you've set the tone here by having a quiet uh, voice as the sort of the narrator or the host of the show. And so you've injected a level of silence and intimacy into the tone. As a consequence, it's easy, particularly on radio, and we have a mic here that's close at hand, and it's easy for me to slip into that suit of clothes and to uh, put the megaphone down and to, uh, you know, pick up a bowl and, like a papermaker does, whisper across the surface of the water, and we can watch it ripple that way. Well, I do like that a lot, I, I, and I enjoy that more and more and more, and especially in this environment. It's a 90-degree day out there in western North Carolina. It's getting toward late May. So somehow 90 degrees afternoon looking out on the mountains invites this kind of ease. You've talked a lot in the last many minutes about how the poetry has its own way, its own will. It comes out of somewhere, someplace finds its location, finds its delivery system, and then sometimes comes through you, comes through me. People out there listening to this will maybe think, that's all fine for Keith Flynn. Maybe Nave, he does, it's fine for him too. These guys have known each other a long time. They've been around this a long time. And I would like to maybe do that myself, but I, I've never done anything like that. Do you think a poem would find me, someone might ask. I'll ask you that same question. What, what would you say to a person who comes to you and poses that proposition? Well, I would say to them, first of all, the first page in the Book of Deliverance reads, Surrender. All right? And we are portals. There's a natural energy and a natural voice. If you're a true poet, there, you are a portal. And you have to keep that portal open at all times. One of the ways you keep that portal open is by constantly going to the well and dipping out the water. You gotta write every day. You gotta keep a book. You gotta keep a book full of hooks and take your hook book and you look for things. You know, Jonathan Williams was a great progenitor of found poetry. You know, he found lines that he put into his poems and sometimes he'd find just signs that he turned into poems because he knew the difference. And you have to write every day. You turn it into a ceremony, and you have to learn how to surrender yourself to the ceremony, the making of poetry. Kafka said, art is the ax with which I break open the frozen sea within myself, right? Robert Frost believed that a person not in touch with their imaginative self or their artistic self was like a tree in winter, completely fallow. 
There was no cambium rising through its veins. And so in winter, the tree sits without its being able to blossom or being able to grow. Uh, human beings are the same way. Uh, unless they get in touch with their creative selves, their more imaginative selves, they never will know what they can know. They will never understand what they can become. And that's part of it. That doesn't mean you have to become a famous published poet. It just means you have to get in touch with your most creative self. Mark Twain said, poetry is the right words in the right order lending light. And he also said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug, right? Twain was full of interesting. Another one he used to say was, you can grab a cat by the tail and you'll discover things that you can learn no other way. Sometimes having a poem by the tail is the only way you're going to figure out how it's going to claw its way into the world. You mentioned you know you're a true poet if you do these things. People might be wondering, how would I know that? Is that something I'm born with? Or is it something I'm just drawn to? And then when I start making and acting and moving in that direction, there's a sense of truth, a sense of harmony that emerges from the moment that I'm working, throughout the moments that follow the moment I start working, that some point makes me think, yes, I'm true to this. The true poet. Reflections. Poems are dangerous. Poem can kill a person. And so you have to decide, do you want to surrender yourself to the making of this, right? And if you are willing to do that, that's a pretty good signal that you're on the path. The second signal that you're on the path is that these words come out of you. These, there is a gush. Keep going back to water. Now that we've started this motif, you know, I keep engendering it over and over. Poems come out of you in a gush. I promise you the day that the, the voices stop coming through me, the lines stop coming through me, the poetry quits coming, I won't be here much longer after that. There'll be no reason to be. The love of poetry is the closest thing I have ever found to worship. And music to me is a moral law. That's the only moral law that I really believe in. You said poetry is dangerous. That's a strong lightning word. That's not a lightning bug word. That's, that, that's a lightning word. Dangerous how? What kind of layers does it, does it present danger? It doesn't set up layers like a knight puts on layers to go into battle. That's not what poems do. Poems actually take layers away. So they strip you down. Uh, they expose you. You become transparent in the throes of a poem. And so unless you're willing to be that naked in front of an audience, then, you know, be careful what you ask for. That's one of the most important things. But you get better by, you know, it's a, writing is a muscle, and you get better at it by doing it. Uh, Jack Nicholas hits this ball into the rough. He goes into the rough, into the gallery, hits it straight up in the air, hits the stick, falls in the hole crowd goes wild. One voice above the other goes, lucky shot. Nicholas turns to the gallery and says, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Right? If you want to be inspired, 
You can't sit around on your porch waiting for to get hit by lightning. You take your golf cart, you cover it in antennas, and you drive into the storm. Then, when lightning strikes, you're prepared. I'm thinking of the Duende right now. And well, I'm thinking you of the storm and the Duende. And one of the things I've always admired about your work, many, many things I admire. One of the things I've admired about what you do is, you, is you, your historical range. You know poets from many different locations, geographic locations around the world. Coming back to the Duende and the danger and the lightning versus the lightning bug, could you reflect for us a bit on some of the poets that we might not know? Poets that you admire that have done muscular things around the world to, to shift. Well, one of the things I've tried to do with the Asheville Poetry Review, number one, is I publish in translations in every issue. I've always thought that was important. Reading a poem in translation is a little bit like kissing through a shower curtain. Uh, you get all of the thrust, but you miss some of the nuance, right? And so as a consequence, you know, you find yourself um, reaching out to find other translations or to find other voices. And I'm always wanting to expose us, our readership to other cultures. Uh, one of the earliest, most famous poets that I published was Russian Yevgeny Yevtushenko. And uh, Yevtushenko, I'm quite certain there's a lot of Americans that doesn't know who he is. But when Yevtushenko, six-year-old kids know his poems in Russia. When Yevtushenko reads in Russia, uh, soccer stadiums get full. And they, they chant his poems back to him like he's Beyonce. Um, there aren't many cultures that are like that. The Italians have Dante. The Russians have Pushkin. Um, the um, Chileans have Neruda. Um, you know, the British have Shakespeare. Um, the closest thing we have to something like that is probably Whitman. You know, American poetry, I would argue, has become the beacon for other poets in, everywhere in the world, particularly the modernists. I often say that the, the generation of poets that was born in the 20s in America is the greatest flowering of poetic talent in the history of the world, in any era. I'm not gonna start naming off all those poets. I'd like for your readership to go and put into the Google, uh, poets born in 1920s. Several of them I published in our latest issue of the review, um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, for one, who lived to be 102 years old. Another poet, Stephen Dunn, a very interesting uh, poet. I think a lot of folks would uh, be interested in, in checking out his work. Um, um, Marvin Bell is another poet that was born in, in around that time whose work is very important. Um, I'm, I think it's our Josephine Miles is another poet that I think uh, a lot of younger generation folks won't necessarily know who that is. You talked about, when you talked about Duende, you're talking about uh, Lorca. And Lorca, you know, the difference between the French and the Spanish surrealists is immense. Pierre Reverdy is a French surrealist that most people don't know who that is, but Reverdy, which is spelled R-E-V-E-R-D-Y, is a magnificent poet, wildly influential, and had a big impact on the um, poets in the 20s and 30s when he, was, when he first started publishing. Lorca talked about Duende, and I'll return back to Duende for a second, because Duende posits that nothing is 
genius or lasting that does not contain an element of death. If something does not have risk, that's why when I, when I talked about poems being dangerous, you thought of Duende, because Duende takes into account the idea that you are rubbing your legs on death when you create. You have the willingness to invite that into your chamber and to do those dances. That's important. You have to, you have to be willing to take chances. Poetry is risky. And if you're writing a poem and there's any phrase in it that you have heard before or uh, there is any cliche in the poem, it has to be excised. You have to be very uh, hard on yourself once you start editing. And you have to be willing to kill your darlings. There's no reason to allow them through because professional poets know that. Professional editors know that. And editors, I've been editing the Asheville Poetry Review for 28 years. We've published almost 2,000 writers from 22 different countries. We have at times published as many as 3,500 copies um, in a single printing, which is a big print run. And it's important for us to have as many risk takers between those pages as we can find. One of my jobs is to shine light on poets who are starting to become neglected poets who for some reason or the other have started to fall by the wayside. Poets by their very nature are neglected in this culture. I mean, poems need room to breathe and room to dream and silence. And dreaming in America is no cinch. Uh, silence takes money. Um, room to dream takes, you know, takes money. Um, this church didn't just happen because I walked up one day and kicked the steps over and they moved it to the top of this mountain. It took money. And we picked this church up and uh, put it on top of the mountain. We jacked it up 18 feet. It was built in 1909. It was reborn in 2009. And uh, we built a first floor under it. We dropped the church down on top of it. And then um, we live in the first floor and we build things in the second floor, in the sanctuary. And on the third floor, we store people that we want to help us build things. I'm trying to fill this room with as much poetry and music as I can. And I think there is a singular spirit here that can only be uh, manifested by a hundred years of funerals and weddings and first kisses and um, conversions to the spirit, um, learning how to become a citizen of the world. And sometimes the church is the only social interaction that people in the rural mountains have. And they learn how to be people. They learn their personhood in the church on Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday. All of those spirits, all of that passage of time, that river of literature that is maybe not literature in its way, have all been in these four walls. And so when you're in here, you can feel that. And now we're in 2022. Mm -hmm. The world is trying to make its way, stumbling in many quarters. The poets are out there writing. I think of some of the poets like Patricia Smith. I think of the poet Ocean Vong, the, the new people that are on the, the stage, the people that are dealing with all of the, the modern issues. Well, Patricia's not a new poet at this point. Patricia's a little bit older than I am, and she's a dear friend, and she's been at it a long time. Well, now, I know. I met <laughs> Patricia. I did meet Patricia in 19... Uh, 91, so mm -hmm. I've known her a long time as yeah. well. 
But and when I say new, I mean new compared to the poets in the 1922s, the modern sure. ones, the ones that are here, here right now. How do you see the work these people are doing? Because you're exposed to a lot of these by way of the Asheville Poetry Review, the powerful poets like Patricia, for example, or, or Marie Howe, for example, is another poet that I've always admired, Marie's work, and, and I could go down the list. So what about the modern ones right now? And, and we are in at least current time. We call it modern, is it? Well, it's contemporary. Most people think of modernists as sort of pre-1950 um, um, writers who were, who were born there. Um, modernism had a big impact on me. Uh, the Norton Anthology of Modern Poetry, when I, first, I carried it around like a Bible, I still carry it around like a Bible. I've, I've read it cover to cover to cover and worn out a copy or two. And there are poets that write for a long time that only start to get attention. Sonia Sanchez, at this point, is in her 80s, and she's winning every prize she can win right now. Well, that's because she's finally breaking through and getting her just desserts. She should have been people paying attention to her in the uh, 70s and 80s. The poet I, who as a personage is a multi-hyphenate, uh, Choctaw Indian, um, Italian, African-American, Spanish. She's got so many uh, uh, different parts of her ancestry. I doubt that Henry Louis Gates could even figure out how many people are hiding in the woodpile that, that uh, helped produce her. The poet's name is A.I. Uh, she's one of the great progenitors of the first person poem. Uh, she gave me, when I was in college, permission to write in the first person in the voice of other writers. She's an amazing, amazing poet who deserves to be better known. Um, and I think that's one of our jobs. It's, it's important for, po you know, I still think of editors as gatekeepers. And, you know, it's important that we uh, uh, allow many, as many voices as we can through the gate and to build this contemporary voicing. It's more, now more than ever, there are more African-American poets who are, are being paid attention to now than ever before. There are more Latino poets that are being paid attention to now more than ever before. And those voices are very, very important to the overall um, um, tapestry of what my poetry looks like. And uh, I don't write rejection letters, by the way. I write reaction letters. Um, I'm not interested in trying to reject people's work. Uh, humor, diction, line breaks, title of the poem, whether it's a sonnet, whether it's another damn sonnet, uh, whether they, the poet sent in a five-page um, bio-sketch, whether your last meal's agreeable digestion, um, whether you took, forgot to take your kid to their music lessons, um, you know, what you, uh, where you have to be the next day, all of these things factor into the editor's response to the poem and it's, it's sitting in front of them. It's never personal. It is always, if a poem gets into me and I can't forget about it, then that poem is probably gonna get published. Um, I, if I, if I uh, reading poems as an editor is sort of like walking down the road and you see a house that you've been there the entire time you've been walking past it and suddenly you see that house for the first time. When that happens to me, I'm gonna publish that poem. All this work that you've done, all this momentum you have, and now you're looking forward 
you do not seem to be slowing down, Mr. Flynn. You are moving forward more now than ever, I would think. And you look great, and you have a lot of good energy going around you, and you've done tremendous work. And those of you listening to this show, I wish you could see this church on the hill. It's a large structure. It's not imposing. It fits right into the beautiful Appalachian environment that we're we're sitting in. And there's a lot more work to be done as I look around this old building. Old buildings naturally need to be cared for and, and loved. What's coming out of this place in the future? What's coming out of you? Well, first of all, um, this it's a big white church it was built by the presbyterians in 1909 as a school for nurses when they also built the only hospital that's ever been built in madison county so it has a lot of lineage here it's a lot like a you know a whale shark as it moves through the water and it opens its maw and it takes in enormous schools of plankton that flow in this building is a little like that great white whale shark, except the it doesn't take plankton into its giant maw, it eats dollar bills. And they flow into that giant maw. And so you have to constantly be feeding uh, it as you, move, as you move through. We do two things here in this sanctuary, primarily. We do live at White Rock Hall. It used to be called White Rock Presbyterian Church. I decided that it would be um, a little bit of a travesty if I didn't keep part of its name. So I wanted to keep all the spirits subdued and satisfied. So we call it White Rock Hall. So we do live at White Rock Hall, uh, the video version where we bring in nationally known authors such as Minton Sparks or Patricia Smith or Quincy Troop or William Pitt Root. We invite them in and we pair them with regional musicians and we film the collaborations live. I'll usually do an interview with those folks also. Uh, and then we have live at White Rock Hall, the radio sessions that are also engendered here. Um, and um, you know, that, that show has poetry and history, a massive array of different genres of music and what I want is to set the lyrics of the music and the poems in dialogue with one another. And I want to introduce uh, the audience to poets they may not have heard before or songs that they may never have heard before. And, uh, and to give as much information, as much webbing that is the historical content that's every time you listen to one of our shows, you walk away thinking, I never heard that before. I did not know that. And I promise you that will happen. If you, if you go to that show and you listen to it, something will take place in the course of it. There'll either be a song or a poem you've never, or a poet or a songwriter you've never heard before, or a piece of historical relevance that's attached to um, the creation of those things. That'll be something you never heard before. And I work real hard to try to make that happen. I'm a big fan of Minton Sparks. I've known her for quite a while and I brought her to Taos a couple of times when I was directing the Taos Poetry Festival as well as the Storytelling Festival. I admire Minton's ability to take memorized work she's written and turn it into work that sounds like it just happens in the moment spontaneously. She's a storyteller. Minton's a storyteller. Some of the spontaneous combustion that you see in her work as it goes by is also her ability not to tell it the same way twice. Uh, Minton's gonna, you know, she has the ability to work on the spot. And uh, 
I, you know, and she can sing. She has a beautiful singing voice. Uh, I, had her, I had her sing some when she was here. If you go to live at whiterockhall.com, live at whiterockhall.com, uh, and uh, you'll be able to uh, see, you know, those interviews and those performances, video performances. One of the things I've tried to do is to merge uh, poetry and music in many ways because they are clearly kissing cousins. And what I've tried to do is to merge them in many ways so that, I mean, for many years, I was known as a poet who wrote songs, but really I was putting as much of my poetry into those songs as I could. And that was, that was part of it, you know. And many, one of the things about that that made me happy was a lot of people, my first book was called The Talking Drum. I'm eight books into this now, but The Talking Drum was the first one. In certain African tribes, when you're born, they assign you a song, not a name necessarily. That's not the most important thing. It's your song. And then if you do well, the, all the members of the tribe stand around you and sing your song to you. But when you do wrong, when you've done something wrong, they also stand around you and remind you of your song. And they sing your song back to you to get you back in your lane, right? Um, so it's, it's very important for me, and it's always been important for me, to try to find a way to let poems find their musical sonic architecture and to try to get that in as many places as possible. I also try to do as many live things as I can. So I'll bring musicians in. You know, I have a poem called Look For Me in Liberia, which is in the first person voice of Nina Simone. And I brought in a, a violin and a piano player, and uh, you know, we just turned the mics on and we hit it. So I try to do as much of that as I can as well. And uh, um, that's, that's important to me as a performer, to investigate those corridors. As far as what I'm doing next, my, my selected poems, I'm assembling that now. You know, I'm, I've written six books of poetry. I've also written two collections of essays. Uh, Prosperity Gospel, Portraits of the Great Recession just came out. Uh, but also I have a novel called The Red Tornadoes that's almost finished. I've been authorized by the family of the actor Rip Torn to write his uh, biography. Uh, I have a book of essays on boxing that I'm working on. It's almost finished. I have a book called The History of Rock and Roll, um, and I have another novel called The Rope Walker, which is uh, the elevator pitch, I would say, is the story of a one-legged Mayan circus performer set during the Mexican Revolution. On that note, can you give us just a little bit of verse to close with, Keith? I do have something that I would like to do. It's in a new book. My book, The Skin of Meaning, uh, was nominated by the publisher for a National Book Award. It was published by Red Hen Press. Uh, the book is called The Skin of Meaning. And the title of the poem, I want to do it for my father, who died in October of 2020. And the title of the poem is come, comes from a Stanley Kubrick movie that was never made. It's called Coffin Not Included. Gradually, the world shuts you out. Your plum skin dapples and craters, effectively exhausted by holding back the waterfall that is a human being. There is no getting used to sorrow. Every encounter, like the rungs of a ladder, lap higher and harder until the rails turn to eels in your hands and escape as ropes of smoke, weary, of the body 
and its constant demands. The walls between this world and the next are leaky as an old rowboat. Heated commerce passes between them, a musical wind, ribbons of distress wound into our bones by ghosts. Because music can pass for conversation and says things not entirely human, beyond the realm of words, notes hanging on their wires like unruffled birds. How we are usually complicit in the things we complain about, and yet we have so little control over what we create. Music makes me do just what it wants me to. Furry arroyos full of cactus shadows know that among the holies there is more than one ghost. Keith Flynn, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us here in this beautiful sanctuary that you've created. Uh, the pleasure's all mine, Jim. It's great to see you, brother. We'll do more of it somewhere down the line. And there you go, my friends. The conversation with Keith Flynn in his now studio, which was his church, the White Rock Church, up in the mountains in Western North Carolina at Shelton Laurel. After the interview, I packed up my gear and Davine Dial and I drove back to Asheville and I'm now sitting on her back porch, finishing up the editing process for this interview and adding a little bit of commentary, as you can tell, at the end of the interview. I'm getting ready to leave Asheville tomorrow and I'm driving west to Colorado to visit some friends and then back down to Taos. So I'm making my loop again, getting out back into the world. When I was driving around years ago traveling and Keith and I talked about this in the interview, I would go to all of these places all over America and I would perform my poems with a team member, always a team member, and we would go to the different schools, and some schools were large and in urban areas, and then other times the schools were in rural areas. We would go into a small town, find the location, drive to the school, pre present the program in the auditorium, and then, and then close it down around 2.30 or so, or whenever school was, was over, and go back to the motel room and relax, explore the, the areas. And I always felt like I was, in a sense, collecting the Americana of the day. Now, this was before we had all of the smartphone access, the internet access, really before GPS. So everything we did to make our way around the country was based on <laughs> sometimes napkins and pay phones and we had to rely on our own intuition our sense of the engineering of things in order to find our way turn left at the stop sign turn right at the stop sign so if one person wrote down 
the instructions to get to a school one way, and I wrote down the instructions to get to the school in another way. It, it might take us a bit of time to figure out which way to go, but we always manage to, to get there. And the reason I bring that up is because I always felt like I was, was absorbing or uh, collecting the experiences of Americana, the different places in our culture. So tomorrow when I drive back to the Western region through St. Louis, first actually through the Pigeon Ridge River Gorge, and then I'll hit Knoxville, Nashville, go north to St. Louis, take uh, I-70 across, across Kansas to, to Denver, and then on to Boulder, and after a a weekend or so there, I'll go back down to Taos. As I do that, I will still be collecting Americana, the stuff that this, this country is made of, the, the trucks, the dust, the rain, the, the leaves that I see here on the back porch at Devine Dial's house, the view from Keith Flynn's window, the studio window, White Rock Church, which is now White Rock Studios, and I think it's White Rock Studios, White Rock something. Uh, you probably remember better than I do because you just listened to this interview. I just did the interview and I actually have forgotten. But remembering and forgetting, it's all part of this process that we go through in our travels throughout our lives. So I remember years ago when I first saw Keith, he was in his band, Crystal Zoo, and oh my goodness, those, those band members were rock and roll stars and they really did get up on that stage and possess the room and I wondered then well how, how do they do it and even to this day I'm, I'm still wondering how people get up there and make those big gestures and make that big rock and roll stuff I'm a little more understated and I was happy to have the interview with Keith because he was understated today as well. So you can be big, you can be understated, you can be anything you, you like within the framework of, of who you are. You can't be someone else. So you have to be anything you like within the framework of who you are. So tomorrow I pack my gear. I'm gonna leave early. I often have found that on these journeys, through Americana, it's easier for me to travel alone. I can stop when I want, keep going for as long as I want, don't have to confer with anybody. And I travel, sometimes I will go 800 miles in a day. Not because it's hard, it's just fairly easy just to keep moving. I mean, after all, when you're out there, what are you gonna do? You can stop or you can go. So I tend to go and I tend to finally arrive at my conclusion, the end, the end of the trip, or as we have just now, the end of this show. So thank you, Keith Flynn, for being part of, of Twice Five Miles Radio, and most especially thank you for listening wherever you are in the world. I'll be doing more of these shows, and I hope when I do, you'll be able to tune in and listen and be part of it. And until then, I would like to say that you have been tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. 
Always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to find out more about what Walter Parks is doing. And Davine Dial, I thank you all the time for offering me the opportunity as well as the other contributors to be part of community radio and Davine is the is the manager of WPVMFM and if you'd like to know more about it WPVMFM.org good place to look and if you'd like to get to know me better and find out more about what I'm doing nave at jamesnave.com is my email and my website is jamesnave.com and every Saturday morning at noon Eastern Time 10 a.m. Mountain Time I open up a Zoom call with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We call the Zoom call the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. And people gather and we write for one hour. We'd love to have you. The door is always open. Actually, you don't have to write. You can come and listen in. We'd love to have you do that. So thank you again for tuning in. And I, I really do appreciate it. And I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.